to you. He'll say a bit about yourself. And Mike's going to come and do the next part of our uh, Genesis series, looking at the life of Joseph. We're almost at the end. A few more weeks, but he's going to be doing the next chapter today. So can we welcome and give him a clap, please? Thank you. So if I've got that right, you're hearing me through the speakers. Fantastic. So good morning, everyone. For those who don't know me, my name is Mike. Um, I'm married to Sarah, who is leading worship this morning. Uh, we've actually been in the church now for just over two years. It was the 4th of July, 2013. We moved here. And I just I can't believe our time has flown. Uh, when we moved here, we had, we had one daughter. We had Sophie. She was about a year and a half at the time. Uh, the second one was in the oven. She was only a couple months away from being born, and Joy was born here in Birmingham um, in, the, in the September, just after we moved. Um, and for those of you who don't know already, number three is now in the oven, so we're busy <laughs> growing our empire, expanding the family, and so number three will be here with us sometime in the new year. Um, as Stuart said, I'm going to be carrying on our series on Joseph. We're coming to the end now. We're in chapter 48 of Genesis. Um, just to give you a bit of context, in chapter 47, or at least at the end of chapter 47, uh, we saw Jacob basically giving orders about his burial. He's coming towards the end of his life and he knows it. In chapter 48, we see him meeting with his son Joseph and Joseph's two sons um, to, to do some very special things with them. And he, he's basically on his deathbed at this point. And he has some very specific things he wants to share with them, very specific things he wants to impart to them. And basically, much of what he says is prophetic, which I think is why it was recorded in the Bible, and it's very, very useful for us today. Uh, chapter 49, we'll see next time, that he then goes on to deal with the rest of his children. And that itself is quite significant. Jacob is dealing, first of all, with his grandsons, these two specific grandsons. And he's got something very special to do with them. And then, and then later on, he starts talking about what's going to happen with his, his other sons. Now, one observation we'll see is that God's gifts and God's grace, they shine more clearly in some believers than others when they're on their deathbeds. And what we'll see when we go through chapter 48 is that Jacob really did shine. He was an incredible example of a man of faith, a man who used the gifts God had given to him, even right up to the very end of his life. Uh, long gone is this man who, who cheated his brother out of his birthright. We saw that right nearly on, early on in the story. Uh, gone is the man who openly showed favoritism to some of his sons. We saw how he treated Joseph as this special son, even outrageously, lavishly in front of the other brothers. He gave them that fancy coat. We now have all those songs from Joseph the Musical that my wife drives me crazy with singing around the house. Um, he even got Joseph to spy on his other brothers. This, this man, earlier on in his life, was not a great character. Um, also, we see him seemingly happily sleep with his wife's maidservants. You know, his wives come to him and say, we can't have children. Why don't you sleep with my maidservant and have a child for me? And he goes, well, okay, honey, for you, I'll do it. You know, he's probably in the secret. He's going, yes, come on. This guy was, was, didn't have a great character early on in his life, but now we're seeing him at the end, and he has grown significantly, and we can learn a lot from him. So Jacob was really shining when he's on his deathbed, and, and it's just something for us to consider. Is that, is that what we're going to be like at the end of our lives? So let's turn to the, the chapter, chapter 48, and I'll just read it to you. So it says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. 
And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also, he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you, and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope, that I took from the land of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. I'm just going to pray before we carry on. Father God, I, just, I want to thank you this morning for your word. I want to thank you for how we have this privilege today to have all of your revelation contained in one book that we can have access to, we can read. And I just pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you will reveal things to people's hearts, that you will speak to us through your word and, and change us where it is needed. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I've already said, Jacob's shone when he was on his deathbed, and the question is, are are we going to do that? Now, just to um, give you a bit of uh, structure to what we've just read, there are some main events that I'm just going to go through and pick a few points out of in Genesis 48. First one is that Joseph hears of Jacob's illness, and he goes to see him. Secondly, we uh, we see Jacob declare his adoption of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. But then we get into the bit where Jacob officially kind of adopts the boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, and blesses them. And then he goes on to explain why he crossed his hands, what the significance of all of that was. And then at the very end, we see a little bit about Jacob leaving a particular inheritance to Joseph. We're not going to spend too much time on that one. It's kind of the last couple of verses. So I'm just going to go through and pick out a few key points for us today. So at the beginning, 
Joseph learns that Jacob is ill and he goes to see him. And remember, Joseph is basically the prime minister of Egypt. He's the most powerful man in that nation aside from Pharaoh. He's probably quite busy. He's probably got a lot of stuff on his plate. But he hears his father is ill and he doesn't fail to, to respect him and he goes to see him. And not only that, he takes his sons with him. He takes his sons because not only does he want to receive a blessing himself, he wants his sons to receive a blessing from his dad. He knows his dad now is this guy with a fantastic character. He's a real man of faith. And he wants his sons to receive the blessing as well. But also I think he takes them because he wants them to see something in Jacob that will have a lasting and a positive effect on them. Because again, he, he knows that his father Jacob is now this man who is, is a great man of faith. He's full of gifting. Um, and he wants his sons to see this aged servant of God and how, how he behaves, how he is right at the end of his life, still trusting, still having faith in God. And I think it's, it's quite as good to acquaint the young people that are coming into the world with the old, aged, experienced servants of God who are going out of it. There's a lot they can learn from them, particularly when they're on their deathbed. What we also see in, in verse, I think it's verse uh, 2, Jacob did what he could to rouse himself and to stir the gifts within him. He's probably feeling, he's, he's on his deathbed, he's practically dead, you know. He's probably feeling quite uncomfortable, quite sore, quite tired. He probably just wants to literally roll over and die. But he knows that his son and his two grandsons that he loves are coming to see him. So he rouses himself um, because he wants to do what he can to impart something to them and to leave a legacy with them. So then it moves on into verses 3 to 7 where Jacob basically declares that he's going to adopt Joseph's two sons. And he starts actually by retelling God's promise to him, which includes, he goes on to include this adoption as part of that promise. This promise he has that, that came through Abraham is that they're going to be a people that multiply, that are going to be a very vast, numerous people. They're going to have the land of Canaan for their inheritance. They're also going to be blessed and be a blessing to other people. He doesn't specifically mention that bit here, but he does mention that they're going to be numerous. And he, he basically says, in adopting these two boys into my family, that's part of the promise. They're going to be part of this multiplying of people, of God's people. And then he also prophesies that Ephraim and Manasseh are going to multiply into tribes in the nation. And then he goes on and he actually receives Joseph's sons into his family. And this is massively significant. Um, this isn't just saying that he really loves the boys and he, tr he considers them like his sons. He's actually adopting them. This is, he's officially adopting them into his sons. The verse says that he says that the boys are going to be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. If you didn't know, Reuben is the eldest. He's the eldest son. And he's basically got the biggest first birthright, if you like. Um, but here, what he's doing is he's adopting Ephraim and Manasseh into that position of, of firstborn in the family, which is incredibly significant. And I think he's doing this for a number of reasons. He's pulling them out of a possible inheritance in Egypt. Remember, Joseph, their father, is, is rich, powerful. He's practically the prime minister of the country. And they have ahead of them a, a future that probably looks, as far as they're concerned, quite bright. They could be rich, they could be powerful, they could be, have, have massive influence in the country. And that's an inheritance that could potentially be coming their way. But, but Jacob is pulling them out of that. And he's putting them into um, the inheritance that's come through God, the promise through Abraham. Um, which is, is massively significant. He's teaching them not to look at Egypt as their home and their future. Instead, what he's doing... He's teaching them to take their lot with the people of God. You see, it's better to be, be low and in the church than to be high and out of it. Simply that. It's, it's better to be low and in the church than high and out of it. To be called by the name of poor Jacob is better than to be called by the rich name of Joseph. And that's this massive change that's happening here as Ephraim and Manasseh are pulled into that family. 
What he also does towards the end of this section is he mentions the death and burial of his wife, Rachel. And I wondered for a while, what, you know, it's, it's quite, a, um, quite a switch in terms of the, the direction the verses are going. He suddenly starts talking about how his wife died. And I was, it took me a little while to think about why he did that. And I think it's because when, when you're on your deathbed, if you call to mind people that have gone before you, it can be quite comforting for you and for, for those around to bring to mind those who have already died and have already gone to be with Jesus. It can be a comfort, and I think that's really why he's mentioning it at this point. It makes death, the grave, a little more familiar and a little less fearful. And so I think that's why he mentions it here. So then verses 8 to 16 go on to, to basically, the, if you like, the official adoption ceremony and where Jacob then blesses the boys. And this is quite remarkable because this, 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 the events that are happening here are mentioned in the book of Hebrews. The, 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 whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, we don't actually know who wrote it, he thought this was such a significant event he was going to mention it in his book. He doesn't talk about what, what Jacob does with his other sons after this. He just talks about the adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh as a really significant event. And then in verse 8, you see Jacob say to Joseph, who are these? As if he doesn't know who Ephraim and Manasseh are, which seems a bit odd. Um, and later on it says that his sight was failing, so maybe he was just a bit blind, couldn't see what was going on. That's not what's happening here at all. He, he knew exactly who these boys were. He just adopt, basically declared his intent to adopt them. He knew who it was. What this is, is this is marking the official start of the adoption ceremony. It's like in, in, in a wedding ceremony, the person who's officiating might say, who gives this woman to be married? They will know exactly who the father of the bride is. It's kind of like the start of the, the official ceremony. It's just a, th- a thing they do or a thing they say. And then we see that Jacob is really fond of these boys, and he's not afraid of showing it. You know, he, he kisses them, he embraces them, they sit on his knee. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not the kind of guy who will kiss and embrace and hug lots of other men readily. Um, you know, he, he, he does this with, his, with his grandsons. He loves them intimately. And what I also love in, in this section is we see both men, both Jacob and Joseph, they, they credit God with their joys, their comforts, the blessings that they have. So in verse 9, Joseph says, These are my sons whom God has given me. And he goes on to also say, These are the, the sons whom God has given me here. In other words, in this land of my banishment, my, my imprisonment, this land that has been bad to me, God has blessed me and given me sons. And he recognizes God is doing that. And in verse 11, we see Jacob saying, God has let me see your offspring also. He didn't think he was going to even see Joseph again. You know, he thought Joseph was dead. And then all of a sudden he's brought to um, this other country and he meets his son, his long lost son who he thought was dead. And that is joyful enough for him. But he also gets to meet Joseph's sons, his grandchildren. And he's just overjoyed, but he credits God with that. He thanks God for that. Then before um, Jacob moves on to actually bless the boys, he recounts his experience of God's goodness to him. He's already mentioned this back in verse 3, but here in verses 15 to 16, he mentions the constant care that God has had throughout his entire life. He talks about how God has been a shepherd to him. Um, Now, this is nothing like the the view we have of a modern shepherd today. This isn't like a guy who's got a flat cap sitting on a quad bike shouting, come by to a bunch of sheepdogs. That's not what a shepherd is like in the Old Testament. When they talk about shepherds in the Old Testament, they were a completely different kind of person. They would go out with their flocks into the wilderness, into dangerous places. They would look after these sheep. They would feed them. They would water them. They would fight off wild animals to keep those sheep safe. And Jacob here is saying, that's what God has been like to me through my life. He's provided for me. He has protected me. He has looked after me. He also says that the angel redeemed him from all evil. 
This is basically Jesus. He doesn't know it at the time. We know this is talking about Jesus. Jesus redeemed him from all evil. And I think this is quite incredible, really, because at this time, Jacob, he didn't have a Bible. There was no scripture for him to rely on. He had the promise from Abraham. But he knew, he knew that God redeemed him from all evil. I really struggle to comprehend how he understood that. It must have been a revelation from God, but he knew it. God himself redeemed him from all evil. It wasn't down to Jacob. Then we go into verses 17 to 20, and Jacob basically then explains why he crossed his hands over. So what happened here is Joseph, Joseph, as he was coming to him, he placed the boys so that Jacob's right hand should end upon Manasseh's head. But Jacob swapped them over, he crossed his hands. And this made Joseph angry. You know, he's probably thinking, oh, you silly blind old fool, you can't see what you're doing, you've got your hands the wrong way around. Um, but, but Jacob says, no, 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 I know what I'm doing. This isn't a mistake, this isn't a joke. This isn't because I like one of them more than the other. In fact, this was prophetic. He was doing this very much on purpose. He goes on to explain, Manasseh will be great, but truly Ephraim will be greater. He will be first. What we see from this is that when God blesses his people, he gives more to some than to others. We don't all get the same things. And often we see God giving more to those who are least likely. He often chooses the weak things of the world. God's blessings simply don't observe the order of nature. Joseph was expecting the greater blessing to go to Manasseh because he was the firstborn, he was the eldest son. But in this case, it didn't happen. God chooses who is saved. God chooses how he blesses people and gifts them. But actually, part of me thinks, why was Joseph so surprised? Because this isn't actually all that unusual a pattern, certainly in kind of his generations and those before. We see that often God advances the younger above the elder. Often he picks the youngest or the most unlikely. So we've got Abel is chosen above Cain, Shem above Japheth, Abraham above Nahor and Haran, Isaac above Ishmael, Jacob himself above his brother Esau. Uh, Judah and Joseph were preferred before Reuben, the eldest. Uh, Moses, later on we see Moses before Aaron. We see David and Solomon before their elder brothers. This wasn't all that unusual a pattern, but still... Joseph was surprised. He was expecting the eldest to receive the greatest blessing, but God had other plans. So to try and link this all together, I want to consider what all this means when we look at it through the lens of the New Testament. I've already said Jacob didn't have a Bible back then, but what we're seeing in this chapter is is how Jacob has grown, he's matured, he's gained wisdom and gifting, um, and he's keen to be a blessing and leave a legacy in the next generation. Even right at the end of his life when he's on his deathbed, probably feeling rotten, He's still keen to be a blessing to the next generation. What we've also seen through this chapter is many glimpses of what I'd say are parts of our story, part of our experience going through life and becoming a Christian. We see God choosing people. We see God redeeming people from evil. We see sons being adopted. We see um, Jacob growing in spiritual maturity. Things that as we look through the lens of the New Testament and what we know now, we can see so much more clearly. We have a much deeper revelation of what they really mean. So really, we should be in a pretty good situation to be able to grow and mature and move on in the Christian life, right? We're in a pretty good situation here. Jacob managed it then. He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have the Holy Spirit. He didn't really know who Jesus was. He knew this angel had redeemed him from evil, but he didn't have the degree of revelation we have today. So surely it should be quite easy for us today to make progress in the Christian life, to to grow and develop and mature like we see in Jacob through this story. But still... I think there are a good many people here, and I know I've been like it in the past, who you probably feel quite, maybe quite stuck in your Christian life. Maybe you're not making any progress. You look back over the last months, years, and you think, 
I just haven't come on. And, and you don't understand why. You feel like maybe the Christian life isn't really working for you. I believe very firmly that this is a matter of understanding our identity. Understanding what really happens to the core of our being when we become Christians. It can be really confusing. People talk about being saved. They talk about being born again, being converted. They even talk about being washed in the blood of the Lamb if you want to be really old school. Uh, and also actually really quite accurate. Then we've got terms like justification, sanctification, glorification. You've probably heard a lot of these terms used in lots of sermons here, even at this church. And we can easily get confused and not really understand how we become Christians, what actually happens, what point through that whole process is when we're considered a Christian, and what it really means, what the significance of it all is. So I'm going to take the rest of our time and I want to walk through what I'm, I'm going to term the life cycle of a Christian. And my first question really is, is a question for you. What do you think the first stage is in the life cycle of a Christian? What's the first thing that happens to you? If you're going to become a Christian, what's the first thing? Any suggestions? Being invited to church, that's a good one. Any others? What do you think is the first thing that happens that starts off the process? Yep. Okay, having, a, having an encounter with God, some kind of spiritual encounter, maybe in your dreams or something like that. Yeah, that's a good one. Any others? Yeah, knowing, acknowledging there is a being greater than you. Okay, these are all very good. Let me show you what I think the first one is. Chosen before creation. Chosen before creation. We are chosen by God before creation, right? All of you are going, oh, I knew that. <laughs> we are chosen before creation. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says this, Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So before we were born, before even anything was created, God foreknew, God chose us, and he chose who was going to be saved. It's not down to us or anything we do. It can't be, because this choice was made before a single day of our life came to be. God chose us. So next, we have human conception and birth. So we're now stepping into creation. God has created everything. We're in time. And then we ourselves individually are created and born. Psalm 139 Verses 13 to 16 say this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. So if we've been chosen by God, our birth was something that he chose to happen. Now your birth may be something that your birth parents chose to happen. It might not be. Maybe you don't even know one or both of your earthly parents. But we can be encouraged by this. You are known, you are loved, you are wanted, you are planned by God. This psalm tells us that God knew us. He knitted us together in our mother's womb and he wanted you to be alive. He created you, he chose you. So, we've been born, we're wandering about in this earth trying to figure out how to make sense of it all. What happens next? We have something called calling. And actually there's two sides to calling. First there's, there's what I'd call, say the, is the external calling. So this is, is maybe the gospel being preached to you, maybe this is just experiencing other Christians and seeing how they live life. 
Actually, the Bible even says that the whole of creation is telling us of the glory of God. The whole creation is a witness to us, a calling to us, that God exists and he is great. So that's the external calling. But then second, we have what I'll call an internal call. Now, this is something that God does by the Holy Spirit to us individually. He speaks to our hearts and he calls to us individually. Um, In Galatians chapter 1, you see Paul talking about this internal spiritual call, but it's very powerful. It's applied to us personally, individually, by the Holy Spirit at the time God wants to. And this is a very significant step. But then what comes next is something called rebirth. You may have heard the term born again. I mentioned it earlier. You may have even heard a term regeneration. It's the same thing. In uh, John 3, verses 3 to 8, it says this. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, with this one, we can get confused. We can think that being born again is becoming a Christian. Now, it is a very, very important part of the process, but at this stage, we're not yet saved. We're not yet going to heaven. There are some other things that have to happen. But what's happening here is that God is working in us to bring our spirits back to life. When we were born as a baby, in that, that, that step, human conception and birth, when we were born as a baby, we were born physically alive, but we were spiritually dead. That's the effect of the fall. That's the effect of Adam and Eve's sin on all humanity after them. Um, we had a spirit, we had a soul, but it's only connected to our body, not connected to God. We were separated. That's the problem. Um, but what's happening here is basically God is bringing that spirit back to life inside of us and reconnecting us with him. That's what is happening in rebirth. Now, I remember this happening to me. I'd, uh, I grew up not in a Christian home. Um, I never really went to church apart from when I had to go with school with one of them funny orange things with bits sticking out. Didn't really know what was going on. Um, but uh, I got to university and I, I got to meet a few other Christians who seemed actually relatively normal. They didn't seem a bit weird. Um, and eventually I got invited to go to church. Um, and it turned out to be a full-on gospel meeting. They were telling the good news about Jesus and I didn't even know that was going to happen. I was kind of sprung on me. Um, but as this was, was happening, the guy was explaining about God and about what Jesus had done for me and, and about how I was a sinner. There was this problem between me and God, but Jesus had dealt with it. I, I just felt something. I felt like this guy was speaking to me. There was probably about 300 people in the room, but I felt like it was just to me. Like He knew exactly what was going on in my life. He was speaking to me. That was the internal spiritual calling. But what, what also happened after that was I, just, I, I felt something coming alive inside of me. All of a sudden, I I was starting to understand. I was starting to believe things. I was starting to believe God existed um, when I hadn't before. And looking back, I'm amazed, actually, at how how that happened. Um, It it can't have been me. It wasn't me processing, understanding what the guy was saying. I was just suddenly believing, understanding what what was real, that God existed and that he loved me. Um, And that was basically my rebirth. That was when I was being regenerated. My, My spirit was being brought back to life and reconnected with God. And it was incredible. So then what happens next is something called awakening and conviction. And I also certainly experienced this as well. In Acts 2 verse 37, this is just after Peter has preached to thousands of people. And some of the people say, it says here in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
So basically, God had performed this spiritual rebirth I just talked about in them. And what had happened is they'd become aware of their sin. They'd become aware of who they were before a holy God. They'd become aware of who God is, how perfect he is, and this gulf between them. And this certainly happened to me. I was suddenly aware of who God was, how so far short I fell of that mark. There was this massive, massive gap between us. There was nothing I could do to fix that problem. And I needed a saviour. And for me in that experience, there was a very short period in that, in that meeting where I was, I was terrified. I, I saw the wrath of God. I knew that that was coming to me. I had this huge problem that needed to be dealt with. But then Jesus came and he said, I've made a way for you. He said, I want you. I want your life now. Come and follow me. This is awakening and conviction. When your spirit is brought back to life, you can't fail to see these realities, these truths about how perfect and holy God is and how so far short you fall of a mark. That's when you wake up to reality and you get convicted of your sin. And Jesus then led me on to the next step. Now, the next step for me actually didn't happen in that meeting. I didn't really understand everything that happened in the way I've been able to explain it to you now. Um, it was later on that evening the next step happened for me. Someone gave me a little book to take away that said a bit more about who Jesus is and what he'd done for me and just sort of led me through the process of taking the next step, which is repentance and faith. We saw in Acts 2 verse 37 um, that these, these guys had got to the point of awakening and conviction. Uh, when you go on to, into verse 38, they've asked them, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter replied, repent. Peter replied, repent. That's what you've got to do. Now, repentance isn't just about being sorry. It's about a complete change of heart. It's a complete uh, turnaround, doing a complete 180 and leaving our old life behind. The key thing here, though, is this is totally our decision. Now, if you've been paying attention, all of the other stuff I've talked about so far is God acting on us. We're not really all that involved. It just happens to us. This is the first step where actually we're involved and we have to um, do something. But it's the turning point. The way I've drawn this diagram is deliberate. We're kind of moving away from God, moving away from, um, from knowing him. Um, and this is the turning point where we come back. In Acts 19, verses 18 and 19, we, we see an illustration of this. There are some sorcerers who had heard the gospel. And what they were doing in this, in this passage is they're bringing all their scrolls that have got all their spells on and all this weird, weird sorcerer stuff. They're bringing it all to be burned. And we learn in that passage that actually it's worth something like 50,000 drachmas, which is a lot of money, massively valuable stuff, but they're bringing it all to be burned. And they're saying, I don't want to do this anymore. They're showing publicly they wanted to turn away from this old life. They're repenting. They came, they openly confessed their evil deeds. They wanted to say, look, this is who I was, but I'm turning away from that. I'm going to lead a new life now. I'm going to follow Jesus. So we turn from our old life and we put our faith in Jesus. His death on the cross and his resurrection are sufficient for us. And that's what we're putting our faith in. So like I say, this is the first time we really get involved. It is incredibly important that we get involved. It's incredibly important we take this step and respond to God in repentance and faith. But what happens next is really significant. I put two things in this next one, justification and adoption, but we're going to spend a bit more time on these two because these are really concerned with our identity. Those are really concerned with what happens immediately after we repent and put our faith in Jesus. So these happen straight away. Justification I'll deal with first. Justification is a legal term. And it talks about our position or our legal standing before God. And in Romans 3 verses 22 to 24 it says this. This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So when we repent, when we put our faith in Jesus, God declares we are righteous, we are justified, we're not guilty, we're acceptable to him completely uh, because Jesus has been punished in our place. So this is simply what is required to be saved, to get to heaven. This is where we become a Christian. This declaration needs to be made over us by God. It's an act, it happens, and it's irreversible. It can't be taken away. So I've got a question for you, some of you to consider. Would you describe yourself as a sinner saved by grace? Quite a few people nodding around the room. It's quite common. People do, will describe themselves as a sinner saved by grace. But let's look at a, a verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now don't miss the subtlety here. It says while we were still sinners. Implying no longer are we. We're no longer sinners. So if we're no longer sinners, who or what are we? It might surprise you to know that over 200 times in the New Testament, believers, Christians are described as saints. And this isn't just, this isn't a title, this isn't something you earn after a period of time of showing that you're a really good person. Believers, no matter how long they've been a believer, are described as saints. And all it means is holy one or somebody who is righteous. So it's not a title, it reflects that at the moment you become a Christian, at the moment you repent and put your faith in Jesus and you're justified, you become a new creation. Your very nature, your very identity, who you are deep down inside, changed from someone being someone who could not help but displease God to someone who is completely acceptable by him. And it is vitally important we understand that. You need to know, I want you in faith, if you, if you don't necessarily or haven't necessarily understood it this way before, I want you in faith to um, believe this morning, whoever you are, whatever you've done, however dirty, however disgusting, however defiled your life has been, however you sinned, when you reach out to Jesus, You don't make him dirty or unclean. He makes you clean. Do you understand that? Jesus reaches out to you. He touches you. He says, you're clean. You are clean. In me, you're clean. I took all your sin. I went to the cross. I suffered and died in your place for your sin. I give you my righteousness. You're clean. Stop saying that I'm unworthy. Stop saying I'm filthy and defiled. You've got a new identity. You are clean. You're a saint. This is justification, guys. This is the so-called great exchange. All of our sin is put onto Jesus. His righteousness is put onto us. But still, we may not fully understand the significance of what's happening here. God doesn't simply look at a a dirty, guilty person in the courtroom of heaven and say, you're guilty, but I forgive you. Go and sin no more. He goes way, way beyond that. He looks upon a guilty sinner and he says, you're not guilty. You didn't do it. Your sin is gone. There is no record. Now, forgiveness is understandable. In our little human brains, we can get our heads around what forgiveness is. You let it go. You don't hold it against them. But the record is still there. They did it. They were guilty. But you forgive them and let it go. But what we're talking about here is way more than that. It's outrageous. This is justified. It literally means just as if I'd never sinned. 
There is no criminal record. It is gone. We are clean. Jesus sees you. He says you are holy. You are perfect. You are spotless. You are blameless. Do you believe that this morning? So that's justification. At the same time, something else happens. I put them in the same bubble on purpose because they both happen at the same time. Justification and adoption. Now this is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. I'll just read some verses to you. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 to 7 say this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we're children of God. We've been adopted into his family. You know, we're not just foster children. This isn't just temporary. We've been fully adopted into his family. We've gained the full rights of being a child of God and a full inheritance alongside Jesus. We're co-heirs with Christ, which is incredible. And this is very different from justification. Justification is about our legal standing before God, right? Adoption is to do with our relationship with God. He didn't have to do it. He could have just declared as just, declared as righteous, And that would have been enough for us to get into heaven and to be with him for all eternity. But he desired more. He wanted this father-child relationship with us and all of the benefits that brings to us. There are so many benefits that come to us by being a child of God. I'm not going to go through them all, but there's one I really want to just ponder for a moment, which is this. If your father is the king, then you are free from paying taxes. Now, I'm not saying run out of here and stop paying taxes to HMRC. Um, Let me explain what this means. In Matthew chapter 17... Verses 24 to 26, there's, a, there's, there's an account here where the temple tax collectors ask Peter if they and their master Jesus pay the temple tax. And he says, yes, and then runs off. He goes to find Jesus and he says, hey, hey, Jesus, do we pay the temple tax? Because he's actually not all that sure. Um, and Jesus says to him, well, well, what do you think, Peter? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when Peter said from others, Jesus said to him, Some remarkable words. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. And we need to grasp what that really means for us today. God does not demand any sort of tax or payment from us in return for his goodness and his kindness to us. We're sons. We're not merely subjects. We are sons. We've been adopted into his family. We're free. We can't earn his love. We can't earn his salvation. It is a gift. And as sons, we do not owe him any kind of tax. This was so revolutionary that the Apostle John says in his letter in 1 John chapter 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He's taking his readers by the scruff of the neck here, and he's saying, look, do you you really understand? Do you really get this, what this means? Are you really hearing it? Do you realize what kind of love has been shown to you, Christian? Do you really realize what God has done for you? You are a child of God. You're not just called a child. You are a child of God. Are you hearing that this morning, perhaps for the first time? Justification and adoption, like I said, they they happen immediately. After we put our repentance and faith in Jesus, we are declared just and we are adopted into God's family and that does not change, that cannot change. I'm not going to spend much time on on what's left, I'll just run through them quickly. So the next two, we've got baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Both of these are very important parts of the normal birthing process of a Christian. These are things that should happen, uh, but they're not necessary for us to be saved. We're already saved, justification and adoption, we're saved. 
But these are, we see in the Bible, these are things that should normally happen as, as people become new Christians. You can look in, in, in lots of places in Acts, there are lots of examples of these things happening, and they don't always happen that way around. Uh, there are accounts in particularly chapter 8 of Acts and chapter 10 of Acts where they're, they're opposite way around. It, there isn't a, a kind of a, a regular order for this to happen, but they are normal things that should happen. <clears throat> Next one, I'll spend a little bit more time on this one, we've got sanctification. So justification is an act, it happens. But sanctification is a process, and it goes on from the point we're saved right until the end of our lives. And it's a process by which God is making us more like Jesus. It's what we've seen in Jacob's life. Jacob has grown and matured. He's become more and more uh, righteous as his life has gone on. And this is what God also calls us to through sanctification. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says this, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's, it's, it's an amazing process. God is involved. It comes from him. But we are called to engage in this process and do what we can to grow and become more like Jesus. What we're aiming for is uh, partly revealed in Galatians chapter 5, and you probably know these verses quite well, uh, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We've seen Jacob growing in some of these qualities. Jesus himself modelled these qualities of character perfectly. So if sanctification is about us working to become more like Jesus with God's help, then what, we, what we're expecting is for these characteristics to be borne out in our lives in, in, in increasing measure as we grow. And not only those characteristics, but also things like spiritual gifts and just, just growing in, in gifting and ability as, as God enables us. It's just like we saw in Jacob. But one thing I want to make clear this, that people can get confused with is that sanctification is not what saves us. It doesn't make us a Christian. We mustn't confuse it with justification. Once you're justified, it's quite feasible. You could, you could never go to church. You could never serve in the church. You could never work at developing your character or doing good deeds or having fellowship with other Christians. You could do all that. Um, and you'd still be saved. You'd still go to heaven. But that is not what God wants for you. That is not what he calls you to. He wants you to continue to grow, to become more like Jesus. And that's what God is calling us to do. And it's not just for the fun of it. It's because it is the best thing for us. We said right at the beginning, God chose us and he formed us in our mother's womb. He knows exactly how he put together. He knows exactly what is good for us. And when he calls us to become more like Jesus, it's because it's the best thing for us. And that's the motivation. The motivation is not to make yourself good enough for God. You've been declared just. You are righteous. You're a saint. You're a holy one. You're going to heaven. And then the very last one, we've got glorification. This is what's going to happen when Jesus returns and he wraps up all of history. When we're reborn in that rebirth that we talked about, our spirit has been brought back to life, but it's still living in this fallen, broken human body that doesn't work all that well. It's been affected by sin. But that's going to change. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 to 55, say this, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We are going to be glorified. We're going to receive a new body. God is going to remake the heavens and the earth, and we're going to be with him forever in a perfect body, with him, worshipping him, glorifying him, and that's going to be forever. 
Now, when I step back and look at this whole process, I am just, I'm blown away by how much of it is down to God. As we said before, all the steps up to repentance and faith, it's God acting on us. He chose us before creation. He, put it, he knitted us together in our mother's womb. He decided we, he wanted us to be born. He called to us throughout our entire life and then at some point specifically called to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He brings us back to life, our spirits back to life and we, he helps us to wake up and see our sin, to see how glorious he is. And then we make that step of repentance and faith. But then after that, being, being uh, justified and adopted is something God does. That's a declaration he makes over us. Baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit, God is alongside with all of those processes. And as we're, we're sanctified, as we grow and develop to become more like Jesus, it is enabled by God. He's, he's involved in that process by the Holy Spirit. And then he's going he's gonna to glorify us at the end of time and we'll be with him forever. So let's try and bring this all together. There's, there's a couple of verses in Romans chapter 8 that kind of tie this whole process together, which I just want to mention. So Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30, say this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're going to be the brothers of Jesus. And then verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, there are no dropouts in that process. If you're chosen before creation, you will be called. You will be justified. You will be glorified. Which is incredible because we are involved in this process. We, we, we must take responsibility and make a decision to repent and put our faith in Jesus. But somehow, if God chose us before creation, it says we're going to be called, we're going to be justified, and we're going to be glorified. So even though our, our, our human decision is a really important part of the process, fundamentally, it's down to God. He chooses who's going to be saved, which can be a little bit mind-bending sometimes, but it is glorious truth. And then also, I just want to look at Ephesians 1, chapter, uh, uh, verse 4 again, we looked at earlier, but also verse 5, and it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So God chose us to be holy, saints, righteous ones, and he chose us to be sons, to be members of his family. That really is the title of this message, chosen to be holy, chosen to be sons. God did it. But here's the crunch. If you think of yourself as a forgiven sinner, but still a sinner, what are you likely to do? You're likely to sin. If you think deep down you're a sinner, you're likely to sin. But you're not a sinner. You're a saint. You were a sinner. You were saved by grace. But now your identity has changed. A new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. You may still sin, but it is not inevitable. If you think sinning is inevitable, that is a lie from the devil. You're a saint. You may still sin, but it is not inevitable. You are not bound to sin. You can make a choice because you are not a sinner at root. You're a saint, you're a holy one. You've been adopted as a son into the household of the King of Kings. Now Satan can't do anything to change that historical fact of who you now are. But if he can get you to believe a lie about who you are, he can completely cripple your walk with Jesus. If he can get you to believe that you're a sinner, it will cripple your walk with Jesus. You won't make any progress in your faith, not like Jacob did. You're not saved by how you behave, but by how you believe. And you won't make any progress in the Christian life unless you get your, your beliefs, your thinking right. So in response today, I'm not going to tell you anything you need to do. 
apart from uh, when we go to when we come to go through the Freedom in Christ course as a church every Sunday next term. That's something I will tell you to do. Try and be here. Try and be here every Sunday. Go fully engage with that process and go through it because that deals with who we are in Christ. That deals with our identity and what it all really means. So do do that. But today, I'm not going to tell you anything you need to do. I'm going to tell you what you need to believe to really have breakthrough and make progress in your Christian life. So please, if you're able, stand with me. And Sarah and Dan, if you want to come back up. not quite sure where they are. I think the star. If someone could just get Sarah. Ah, she's coming. Good. <clears throat> so we're going to declare some really important truths together and then just go into worshipping Jesus. Now what I want to do is um, I'm going to read each one out first and then we'll just read it back together as, as a church family together. Uh, don't worry about saying the, the, the scripture reference at the end. Just make the statement. Um, but I'll go through them one at a time. Um, I'll, again, I'll say it first and then we can read them all back together. We'll do one at a time. So the first one. I have been chosen and appointed by God to bear fruit. I have been chosen and appointed by God to bear fruit. Second, I am born of God and the evil one cannot touch me. I am born of God and the evil one cannot touch me. Thirdly, I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. Fourthly, I have been justified I have been justified. Next, I am a saint, a holy one. I am a saint, a holy one. Next, I have been adopted as God's child. I have been adopted as God's child. Next, I am confident that the good work God has begun in me will be perfected. I am confident that the good work God has begun in me will be perfected. I am a citizen of heaven. I am a citizen of heaven. And then lastly, I cannot be separated from the love of God. I cannot be separated from the love of God. Let's worship Jesus together, shall we?